0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Let's turn to Psalm 92, we will read the whole thing together, and we'll pray. If you don't know where it is, basically just open the middle of your Bible, look for Psalms, and then 92. Psalm 92. Three together. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's pray together. Lord, as we read and as we know to be true, you are righteous and just. You are a hiding place and our safety. Whether we can see it with our physical eyes or not, you are here. You don't lie, and all that you have revealed to us is true. We trust you today, and we ask that you give to us all that we need. We look to you the one who has done great works, which ultimately bring you glory and it brings us eternal happiness and fulfillment. So we thank you, God, for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hope you had a a good time. Uh, Whether it's maybe some of you are working, most probably were off. Hopefully you didn't eat too much food. Uh, There's a lot of good food at my house. Uh, maybe you guys were playing some football or watching football in some way, shape, or form, spending time with family, friends, maybe doing some shopping. I don't know what you're doing, but I hope you had a great time. And more than that, welcome to be together, and we're glad to worship together our Lord. Thanksgiving's a great holiday, uh, but I do think sometimes it's a little bit confusing, um, especially for our kids. You know, it seems to be pretty straightforward what it should be about, like it's right in the name, it should be pretty simple. Uh, but sometimes we're a little bit more interested in like Black Friday and what's happening there so we can go to the place and get the gifts that we're going to give away in a month from then. You know, it's a great way to kind of think about it. Uh, and then another one of those holidays that maybe if we don't cook turkey any other time in the year, that's the one that's so the one day we're going to make sure on our menu is turkey in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, you don't, you don't hear a lot of the, about the, uh, the chicken's bigger, you know, older cousin, the turkey. There's not a lot of chicken shoots out there, though. There's a lot of turkey shoots. There's turkey hunting, but not so many chicken hunting. Um, and, and then, I don't know if you've seen this. My, my kids, I don't know if they're... They're, they're not too discouraged or uh, confused by this, but we were reading some of the books that they had gotten from the library about Thanksgiving the other day. And we stumbled across one, and I didn't realize this until, like, we're halfway through and closer to the end. I'm like, oh... This must be put out by PETA. This is all about saving the, the turkeys and like eating sprouts and greens and pumpkins and other things. You know, it's a little bit subversive there. So I'm not sure about all the messaging, messaging that goes out for Thanksgiving, um, but sometimes it can be a little bit weird. Uh, we had something a little bit strange happen to us this Thanksgiving morning. Um, we were kind of getting ready, making some preparations for Thanksgiving meal. Out with the family, had breakfast together, and we put on, uh, we were trying to put on the Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's kind of his background, kind of fun to do it together. And we tried to put that on, but our, we, we live in Blackwater, and there's hardly any cell reception, and there's apparently not very much television reception out there either. Um, so we couldn't get any major station that would carry it, so we tried to look online to see if we could get something to watch. And our, our, uh, our internet provider put it on there. We're like, oh, great, we can just watch it this way. We put it on for the kids, and Chris and I kept making some breakfast and, and going about the day. We kind of came back into the living room. I sat with him for a little bit, and I was like, this is the weirdest Thanksgiving Day parade I've ever seen. I'm like, I know it's still that, but like maybe the COVID thing has just gone too far. It's just really, really difficult to put on a good production, you know? And I understand all that. You gotta be real careful and all this. But eventually as we were watching it, we're watching, uh, you know, things just, strange to me that we're like, this should be good television, like no-brainers, we're getting crossed all the time. Like there was music that was overlapping other music, and then there was like times where they'd be like in the middle of a song and then they cut, and they kind of like stretch and they're working out. Someone comes over and fix a costume. I'm like, what are we watching? It's like the outtakes that was before. I'm still not exactly sure what was going on, but we kept seeing. I think our favorite part, the one that Chris and I laughed the hardest at was, Mario Lopez, I don't really know if you know who that guy is, um, but he was apparently the host and they were flicking to his living room over in California and he was kind of like narrating what was going on. Well, like every time, it must have been like super, super live because they'd be like, hey, you're on. Oh, okay. Welcome back. And it was just really strange. They did not do a good job of this at all. And like, we, we were just like, maybe we got the lesser version. Like, Network television gets like the real parade. It looks all beautiful and you get every right performance. And maybe they hand off to the other people, us lesser people, don't get to watch regular television, like the outtakes and the edits and like the staging area for the actual parade. So it was really weird and really goofy. And I'm glad that so far in our house, that is not like a tradition that we're all looking forward to, like, yes, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, because it was weird. And we eventually just turned it off. We're like, hey, go jump on the trampoline or have fun doing other things. You know, this just is not working out. It was just, it was just way too strange. Anyway, we're, we know that Thanksgiving is a big deal, uh, especially in the United States and a few different countries around the world. And we're thankful for the opportunity to get together, do some quintessential Thanksgiving things. But in the, in the essence of it, we're thankful that our nation even takes the day aside to be grateful, to thank someone, at least, for something that we have. To just kind of take account of our material possessions and be thankful for, for those things. It's a wonderful holiday, um, you know, but uh, I, I don't know if we all get it exactly right. That's okay. I chose to break away from Ephesians today, though, um, not because I'm anything wrong, but I want to take some time to talk about Christian Thanksgiving. And I don't mean by that like a separate occasion where we only get Christians together and have turkey. What I mean rather is the act of giving thanks to God. Like what does it mean to be those who are celebrating via Thanksgiving, giving thanks to God? Um, I've mentioned it before, but of all people, we have the most to be thankful for. And we have the one who receives that thanksgiving. We know who to thank for all that we have. Um we were going around saying a few things that we were thankful for at our table. This is our last community group we got together last, last Friday night, I think it was. And we are just taking some time, what are you thankful for maybe in 2020? Just some things where we kind of regroup and think about those things together. And as we were doing this, um, it kind of hit me that anywhere I go, here in this building, at my house, somewhere else, I can basically point anywhere and point to something that I am thankful for that I know I didn't do, I didn't make happen but rather God gave to me. I mean, we talk about uh, good food. We have a house. I have a car. I have a job. We have freedom. There are usually we have some sort of family of some sort of relationships. So many different things to be thankful for. I mean, we've got fresh baked apple pies and turkey and s'mores and pizza. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to be thankful for. I know a lot of my stuff centers around food. You can pray for me. There are a million things that we could be thankful for. And I was musing on this later, and I realized that almost any human being in the world can be thankful for these things. And they ought to be, right? But it made me think, maybe my thanksgiving is too small. Is is my thanksgiving maybe somewhat lacking in some way? You know, I was thinking, if that's true that anyone, a believer or an unbeliever, could be thankful for the same things that I'm thanking him for over and over again, maybe I'm not thanking him from the depths of the deep well of who God is and all that he has done. So, as I kind of think about this through, I thought, what what could this be? The Bible? The Scriptures? God's Word to me? The, The Holy Spirit who's evident in mine and your lives? The church family that God has given to me? But eventually, I just kind of drilled down to the most basic thing. The fact that God has rescued me, the fact that I'm a Christian at all, the fact that God sent his only son, the second person of the Trinity, died so that I might be rescued, so that I might be his and I might be made whole in him. Psalm 92 is a psalm of thanksgiving. And as I read it, this psalm, I, I realized that it does a way better job of describing Christian's thanks, Christian thanksgiving much better than I could do. So I want to take this time together to take a look at it. It's a psalm that really ought to be sung on the Sabbath. You could see that from its title. It was sung from a place of rest, from a place in a sense that it was literally the work of a believer to do on the Sabbath. Nothing else but rather praise and thanksgiving to God. When all other works ceased, This was the rightful work of those who trusted Yahweh. The structure of the psalm is pretty simple. He says at the beginning that it is good to give thanks. Okay? Then he says, he tells us why it's good to give thanks because God has made him glad. And then for the rest of the psalm, he describes how that God has made him glad, how he's done it. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's good to give thanks. He tells us why it's good to give thanks because God has made him glad. And the rest of the psalm describes how it is that God has made him glad. He's talking really, of the rest of the psalm, about the works of the Lord. And not the works that we usually think about. Usually we think about the incredible power of God. Maybe the massive displays throughout redemptive history when all the nations looked at Israel like, oh my goodness, this God is for real. We ought to be scared. That's not what David talks about in this psalm. He's going to talk about the works of God's hands that we may not regularly think of, maybe are the works of God that we take for granted, perhaps. The psalm shows us that thanksgiving really is something different than what we all just think about when we gather on the table. It is a declaration of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Think about that when you think about what thanksgiving is a declaration of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. It shows us that at the heart of Christian thanksgiving is the proper recognition of God and the praise of God for the work that he has done in making us his people. And now he continues, in a sense, to make us into what we are to be. Uh, Even when, to us, when we look around, uh, it seems as though everybody else seems to be flourishing that doesn't care a lick about who God is. It seems as though they're sprouting up and doing well. And yet God tells us, reminds us that those who trust Christ and Jesus alone are the ones who truly thrive. Let's go ahead and start right at the beginning and we'll just work right, through, right all the way down through. Verse one, he says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name almost high, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. He starts off here then telling us that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. And by this he means both good for, like as, a, as unto God, like it's good and it's approved by him. It's something that is good and it makes sense, kind of like he called his creation good. He is saying thanks to me is a good thing. I approve that. But it's more than that. It's also good for us. As we go on, you'll see this here. We're going to talk about that once we get to verses 4 through 15. But for now... Just simply let that sit for a moment. The Bible tells us that it's good and a right thing for us to give thanks to God. Not just talk about it around the table together. That's fine too. But he's talking about prayer. He's talking about proclaiming it. He's talking about actually making this directed at God himself. He explains what he means, though, by giving thanks. He kind of elaborates over these next few lines if you look there. What does it look like to give thanks? Here he specifically talks about singing making melody and music. David even references probably the the musical instruments of his day. We have the lute, the harp, and the lyre, not as popular nowadays, but still those things that would have led worship and singing together. We could probably enter in our own of a piano and guitar and the viola or the djembe, like that idea that together we make music unto the Lord. We're not trying to be up here making bad music. We're not the best. We know that. But unto the Lord as we sing, these things are coordinated for the praise of our God. Uh, And it sounds a lot, if you remember this, kind of sounds like last week, right? We were in Ephesians 5, 19 and 20. We were more than that. But let me just read verse 19 and 20 and see if it rings a bell. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks to him, Uh, Sorry, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we already know this isn't just some Old Testament thing. This is something that those who are filled by the Holy Spirit, Christians, are to do regularly as well. We know that this is part of the outworking of God's work in us through his Holy Spirit. It's to then declare. So let me, hold on, what's the content of these songs though? This is we we kind of think about this because if we have discerning ear, we want to be careful about what the things we listen to and sing. But what's the content of these songs? As he says here, if we take a look right there, he says this is the songs of praise to the Most High that acknowledges who God is. He says it's to declare His steadfast love in the morning and His faithfulness by night. And that's just a really good way of saying all the time from the morning to the evening or the morning to the night. We are praising God for His grandeur and His immense mercy. It's constant looking back to His steadfast love, that very thing that He set on us so that we would be His. We're talking about covenant language, that He has chosen a people who He has set His steadfast love on. He does not set His steadfast love on all universally. And so what He is pointing out here is that we are to declare that steadfast love that one that is in relationship with God, the faithfulness that God has and continues to be both day and night. It is good then to give thanks to God. But why? Look at verse four. For, in other words, because you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. So two things to point out here for a minute. First, he answers that question, why is it good to give thanks? The answer he says, it's good because God made me glad. Now, we just go right over that and go to the next point. Uh, Made me glad by your work. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Because he's saying literally, the reason I'm giving thanks is because my heart is glad, is joyful, is, I'm going to use the word, happy. It's been changed forever because something has happened. The steadfast love of the Lord has been put on me. The reason I'm giving thanks is because I have been made glad. He isn't talking about happiness that comes, again, this isn't bad, from sitting around a Thanksgiving table. He's not talking about the happiness that comes from getting a new car or from winning a soccer game or any of these things, although they're good. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the fading pleasure that everyone in the world experiences at some time or another. He is talking about the rock solid joy and happiness that can only be found in God. That's what he's referencing here. He is saying, let's think about David for a minute. Probably he's the one that wrote this. He's saying, I'm a king. I have everything that I need. I can accomplish anything I want to. I can have anything that I want to the accolades, the riches, the experience, anything that this world can give me. And he is saying here, even though that's true, God has brought me near. He has brought me true, eternal, all satisfying happiness. The reason I'm giving thanks is because I'm glad. Uh, and I don't know if you've experienced this maybe either with your own children or at least you can kind of walk with me. You guys know my kids. Think about this. It's like Evelyn look at me with a beaming smile and say, Daddy, thank you. I am happy in your home. I love being safe and sound and with my family who takes care of me. Thank you. I am glad. I am happy in this place. But you may say then, how did God make you so happy? because I it's a, the analogy eventually breaks down. I am just a regular old earthly father. Think about the God who is infinitely large, eternal in his scope, and nothing but good. He is not sinful. He's not tempted with evil, but constantly gives and gives and gives. That is the God who makes us happy, the one who has brought us into relationship with him. That's the glad we're talking about here. So what makes us so happy? What makes us so glad? Look at the rest of verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. The Lord has made us glad by his work. He's going to uh, you know, start to go off in a minute. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. He kind of can't help himself here. I know, I mean, I mean if you keep reading, you're going to see. He's saying, though, I know you. I have read your word. I have heard the prophets speak. I have, I have responded in repentance and faith. I love you, God. I submit to you as king alone. And I understand that you have my eternal soul. And because of that, I'm astounded and glad. All that you have done has brought me to a position where I can find rest and hope and happiness in you. Your work has made me glad. And like I said, he can't kind of help himself. Look at verse five. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Now, we still don't know at this time yet what he's going to talk about. We haven't read past this. Just think for a minute. And we're wondering what it's going to be. We know it's going to be big, though. He's just kind of like exuberant about this thing. Again, here, maybe he's going to reference like when he parted the Red Sea or when he um, worked on Joshua's behalf and the people of Israel to overcome in these enormous battles. Like you would think he's referenced or maybe creation. The psalm that we read together earlier, I don't know if you saw that, he he referenced creation language of the immense power and greatness of God's work. It was God doing these things. Again, but this is what he says, verse 6. So we're expecting something like that, right? Verse 6, the stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. Hold up. Are you saying then you mean that these works are something that not everyone can know? Like that not everyone understands what we are being thankful about. These works some can't understand and know them. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying here. He's not saying that only smart people can you know, be thankful to God. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that dumb people can't do it. This is not about intellect whatsoever. He's using this term almost as though someone is a beast that does not understand human thinking and analogies and can communicate. I know some of you think you can communicate with your dogs and cats, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who is not able to understand. Someone who is really a fool. And we've seen this designation before, both in all the scriptures, but specifically the Psalms. Think about Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What he is talking about when he talks about someone who's a stupid man or one who is a fool, it's their direction or disposition to God. Those that do not accept him as the king that he is. They are like a beast. They are dumb. They are foolish. They are stupid. Again, he's not trying to insult their intelligence. That's not what's going on here. He's saying that only those who love and trust God alone as their savior and king can understand what he's about to say, to talk about these works, So, what is it the fool cannot understand? Look at verse 7. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Whoa! He's saying that the work of God is to bring eventual judgment on the wicked ones. Despite the success of unbelievers, because I guarantee you look around your neighborhoods, you're going to see it all around you despite the success of unbelievers, despite what you and I may see going on around us, God will not pardon the guilty. He tells us this in Exodus. He cannot and he will not. What we are experiencing around us is not forever. He admits that those who do not know and love and trust God alone actually do grow. They do. They sprout up. They're, again, that's a very important word. You see that next one? They flourish. They flourish. That's a very important word here. You're going to see it as we go on. He's saying that this is true. Those who do not care about God sprout up almost overnight. They grow like weeds. They begin to succeed and grow and even flourish in the world around us. The Psalms, again, are full of this kind of talk. You remember this from Psalm 73. You've probably heard this, but I want you to listen to how the psalmist talks about one who is worldly wise, arrogant, wicked, hates God. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like all the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. In other words, they eat well. They have all the riches that they need. They can do whatever their heart's desire is. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Now he's not making a point that all rich people are wicked. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is pointing out is somehow it seems as those who don't know love and know and love God can still have prosperity, can still seem to thrive and flourish in the world around us. And it makes all Christians scratch their head and think, is what I'm doing worth it? Does it matter? It sort of seems like I'm not getting ahead compared to all those that are more than willing to, to just put God away and do whatever they want to do. This, though, is the truth about the wicked. They do prosper. But, although they flourish, here and now, he says, get this word, that they are doomed to destruction forever. But, verse 8, you, O Lord, are on high forever. Notice what he does there. He puts those things right next to each other to make the contrast clear here. The wicked, destruction forever. God on high forever forever. What he's doing is no accident. It's that he's showing that the wicked and God are placed right next to each other. And the wicked haven't just made a bad choice and the universe just kind of dumps them off. Sorry, you made the wrong choice. Uh, And this one, oh, this is the good choice to go on this path. But he is showing rather that these people have made God their enemy. They have actually rebelled against their creator, the one who they are accountable to. They have chosen to rebel, get this, against the almighty one the one who sees all and holds eternity in his hand. Look at verse 9, 10, and 11. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my, of my evil assailants. You see, this is the thing. The wicked will have to face the Judge, capital J. Maybe not in this life. Maybe they will die rich and famous and proud and full of pleasures, but they will one day face their maker as all of us will. This is pointing out that the Lord in his patient sovereignty allows for the seeming prosperity of the wicked, but his enemies will perish. They will be scattered. So if I can say this for a moment, church, Don't be deceived by what the world thinks is the truth. By what the whole crowd seems to have this group thinking. Like if we all just make a decision this way, well, I don't want to go against the crowd and it seems kind of right, so I'll just do that. No, 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 no. Remember that the prevailing thoughts of the day are not the truth. Probably within 10 to 15 years, it's going to switch anyway. It is not the rock. It is that which groupthink brings up. and Like what do we all feel good about? Okay, let's all go this way and we'll do that. That is not what you should base your life on. The truth of the scripture is God's truth. Period. And I'll just say this. Truth is God's. Period. It is not ours to figure out somehow and like if we get enough people that agree on it, then we know what the truth is. The truth is in God and His word alone. It's easy to think that the world around us knows what they're talking about. But remember, governors, celebrities, uh, You know, social media influencers, they do not have the final say. They don't. They don't know the truth. And actually the scriptures tell tell us by looking in Romans 1, they do know the truth, but they suppress it in unrighteousness. They would rather do what they want to do. So if I can just call us to this, remember, what everyone thinks is right and true, that may have parts of truth in it. It may even have parts of right things in it. But remember, that is not the prevail. That is not going to be the final authority. God and his word are the final authority. Look to him then. Consider our ways before him and tremble before him, the one who holds all of time and eternity in his hands. As the psalm says, he is the most high. What we're experiencing right now, in a sense, a blip on the radar. He is the most high. So let us worship before him. The wicked then are doomed to destruction forever. In verse 10 and 11, there's this beautiful grace for God's people though. Take a look there. The work of God has exalted our station, our position in ultimate reality. We're not weak and poor people when the light of eternity is flecked on. And all of a sudden we see what's really going on behind there. When we see eternal light Jesus Christ shined on, and after would come the death of our normal physical body, we realize that in eternity something much greater is going on. This analogy of the exalted horn of the wild ox obviously is a little bit strange to us, but it gets at an idea of strength and vigor in God's people. That That he has anointed us, this idea here of fresh oil, means that we are ready for service and blessed in every way. Able, not like old, dried-up, poor ones that can't do anything, but rather ones who have been given everything that we need to accomplish every task that God has called us to. We're not left to flounder then, but rather to thrive. He even gives us, in this way, perception. He helps us to see and hear about the truth. Verse 11 says, My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. In faith, then, we can trust that God says what he says about the fool is true. And even here, I think he's probably recollecting some of the things that God's people have seen. They actually have watched some of their enemies be destroyed. At the very least, they've heard the stories. They have heard with their ears that their assailant's doom is sure. They know what happened at the Red Sea. They know what happened to the people when they came into the promised land. God did have his way and every one of his promises came true. This is what they know. But even those things, all as good as they are, are only a shadow of the greater reality that God will scatter his enemies and that their downfall is sure. Now get to verse 12. It's my favorite part of the psalm, the description of how God works to do and make his righteous people. Verse 12, he says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree, and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. For a minute, go look back at verse 7, because you're going to see these words before, right? He says, though the wicked sprout like grass, and evildoers flourish. Remember, I said that word flourish was an important one. In verse 7, he says that the wicked sprout and flourish like grass. But now in verse 12, we get here, we see that the righteous flourish, like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. I mean, this, we can't miss this picture, right? The two, the two peoples, they're both talked about as flourishing or growing. But here we see it, something a little different. The first one, we get these pieces of grass sprout up. Maybe they're even full. They're green. They look full of vitality, but they're not too big. And in a moment, they're trampled. They're burnt. They're cut down. Whew, gone. We see other passages in Scripture talk about how it's so easily burned up in a furnace. It's gone in a second. But the palm trees, the cedars of Lebanon, they grow, they flourish, they become good for fruit and for shade and for strength and for height. In short, they tower above the grasses. They're infinitely more strong and lasting. Obviously, the, the, the analogy can't go too far, but he is using this to help us understand that these trees are planted and strength is coming in them by God's hand and what actually matters is that they are not grass who is going to be cut down, who is going to be shown light on or trampled under the feet of men, but rather that they are planted as unto God. Now he uses this analogy, but then he makes it even more meaningful as he goes and tells us where these trees are planted. It's not just in any old field, look at this, not just here on earth, but in the house of the Lord, in the courts of God in a place where they will be eternally nourished and cared for. And not just by other people. Oh, that's good. I mean, we we could be cared for by Adam. That's a good garden to be in. What about in the house of our Creator? What about in the courts of our God? The one who gave himself for us, will he not care for the cedars of Lebanon that are in his house, the palm trees that flourish in his court? But the question is, if that's who we are, this amazing picture, we're not grass, but rather we're the cedar of Lebanon or we're this palm tree that's tall and strong, what end does this be? What's the purpose? What is the goal of these things? Look at verse 14 and 15. Why do these trees exist? Verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. These trees are meant to bear fruit, to be fruitful, to have the purpose of doing God's work. They aren't just for scenery. They are meant to bear fruit. He says that Christians, even as we mature and grow old physically, that we are useful in a sense that what is going on here is that we are full of sap and green. That idea, again, of vitality and vigor for what he has called us to do. That this life and strength is God-given. And remember... That vigor and sap is not made just so the tree might look good. It probably doesn't look good once it gets to the end of its life. It's not looking so great. Weighed down by gravity, lots of gnarls, not quite the tree that it was in its, in its youthful self. But the one that's filled with sap and green has a purpose. Look what he says. But rather, he says, the purpose is to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Guys, this is what we are made for. We weren't made to look good. We were made to declare the righteousness, the goodness of God. To declare that the Lord's upright, that He is my rock, and that there is no unrighteousness in him at all. This is our purpose. You've heard of it said probably like uh, when you consider what's the purpose of man? A doxological purpose. That means to the praise of God. Purpose. It's not for us to have a great life or to just do something that is secondary. It says, all to the praise of God. And that's exactly where he's going here. These are the works of the Lord. This is why we give thanks. We are made into vessels of thanksgiving and praise for all the world to see who our God truly is. This is the work of the Lord. This is what David is making a whole deal about. He's saying it's good to give thanks. Why? Because God's made him glad. What's made him glad? The work of God. He's actually made this person, you and me, into these flourishing trees that bear fruit to declare the goodness, righteousness, uprightness of God. It's beautiful. My question, though, now, what's the purpose here? I'll, I'll just quickly say this. This does not mean that the other things that we give thanks for are lesser somehow, that they don't matter. They certainly, as far as rank and priority, I would say that they are lesser. But it doesn't mean that we should stop thanking God for our food, for our families, for buildings, and for, for uh, freedom. These are good things to be thankful for. What I don't want us to miss is that our thanksgiving must be larger than this, especially as Christians. Because our eyes have been opened. We know something that those who are fools do not know. I want to, I want to give you two things. So number one is kind of on that line. Expand your thanksgiving. I'm not talking about have more people over for turkey Uh, I'm I'm talking about when you give thanks to God is it too small what do you thank God for just get personal for a minute when you pray what do you thank God for by yourself when no one else is around what do you thank God for I think that kind of stabs me in the heart and says maybe I need to thank God for the truth of what he has done in Jesus Christ for me as he has shown it to be true i'll just call us then remember that we have had our eyes opened and that we can draw from the deepest imaginable well of grace and goodness in god's redeeming love so i'll just call us to continue to thank god for his good gifts that's good that we experience around us but we must have a deeper more eternal view of thanksgiving recognizing god's gifts i used to think that it was kind of silly to thank god for my salvation but Uh, As I get older and older, I realize that the scriptures are full of all different peoples thanking God for salvation and his gifts in all these ways over and over again showing it. And our passage shows that Christians don't just sit around at the table and talk about it quietly. They declare it. That means for many to hear and know and see. It's evident from our lives that God is all-powerful and kind. So what kind of things do you give thanks for? Just call us to that. Consider your own thanksgiving and what you thank God for. If you aren't sure how to put this into words, read Psalm 92 or any of the Psalms. My goodness, there's full of things that help us to know what to thank God for. And as we do so, this is the beautiful thing. As we do this and like learn what we should be thanking God for, and we thank God for it truly, it actually works backwards and grows us into a deeper relationship and understanding of who God is. That's the first thing. Expand our thanksgiving. Number two, Can I call you today to look past what you can see with your physical eyes, with your experiences? This psalm helps us understand that what's happening right now around us can be a complete distraction. can actually tell us lies if we're not careful. The only thing that tells us the truth is Scripture. This is God's work. Maybe, again, I'll ask then, what, what is happening right now that would distract you from that truth? What are the things that make it hard to trust and give thanks in this time? This is a a lonely, depressing time of year for many, many people who did not have maybe the same families that some of us had. Hardships come up, old hurts surface when we should feel all good and warm inside. It's a difficult time of year. But let me ask you, does that blind you to the truth and the goodness of God that we can respond and say, my heart is glad? why because of your works not because of me not because of my situation here in life but rather because the rock solid truth the happiness that i have in god that he has given me his steadfast love in jesus christ and that now i am secure in him this is grounds for thanksgiving maybe it's sadness right now the time again can be brutal the pandemic by itself has uh, has put many different new questions to us that become really difficult to figure out how we're supposed to interact with each other and depression is on the rise and anxiety and all these different things. All these things can distract us and they're real. Don't get me wrong. They can bother us. The only way that we work out of these things though is not by self-helpness. Get ourselves up for this. Get happy. Watch a bunch of Hallmark things. Like That's not the way we do this. We look to the rock who is higher than us the one who is given to us. We should say then, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. So here's the word from the Lord. The crazy thing is that I'm just a a guy. This is the word. This calls us to the truth. He says, don't look to all that's around us. Instead, look to your God, your covenant-keeping, loving God. His steadfast love is sure. He is our fortress, our rock, when all around you looks like it is getting off better because they're not obeying and loving God, remember this truth. Remember that your God is steadfast and eternal and holds all eternity in his hands. Look to your God for all the wonderful works that he has done. If you love Christ, if you trust him, I'm talking about if you're a Christian, if you are saved and he is your God, you are not an old dried up piece of firewood but rather one who has the sap and the green and the life and the vigor and vitality to do all that he has called us to do. Remember, it's not your own strength. When I look around here today, I don't see this one stronger than that one. This is going to do more than that one. If you have Jesus Christ, good night, you have all that you need to do exactly what he has called you to do. At every age, we're going to be walking a walking picture of thanksgiving, of praise to our God. As verse 14 and 15 show us, our lives should declare the truth of the Lord, uh, the, the truth that the Lord is upright, that he is our rock, and that there is no unrighteousness in him at all. So, look past those who seem to be sprouting around you, who seem to be growing and flourishing, and remember that they will perish unless they turn. Their doom is not sure. They can be saved. We are also the light of Christ. So we call to a darkened world who thinks that this is their best, best life. When in truth, if they do not submit to our God, to the God, to God, to their God, actually, they will surely know doom. They will know judgment. They will have been scattered abroad by God. Look past these things. But remember us, we must trust God, knowing that he is on high forever. That's what he tells us here, and that we will flourish for eternity in him. So this is our God. This is the true, in a sense, picture of what thanksgiving ought to look like. It is good, then, for us to give thanks to him in these ways. Let's pray. Lord God, we we thank you. We thank you for the simple things. All that we've experienced here, most of us here today have eaten something already. We have slept in a place that was out of the elements. God, we have much freedom. And yet, Lord, this psalm teaches us to look past those things to remember because we are not fools, but by your grace we have been enlightened to see the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ, you have given us much in yourself. We look to you and remember that we can't do the law. The second person of the Trinity had to die because we couldn't do it. Lord, may we remember that, not only for our salvation if it's in the past, but also, Lord, for daily walking, needing your grace, trusting you. May your Holy Spirit empower us to walk and give thanks for those things which are far deeper than just the things around us. Lord, you have made your people your own, and we thank you for this good grace. Bless us in what matters, Lord. Teach us to be those who declare to the world that you are upright, your steadfast love. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.